Welcome to the How to Get a Job podcast. I am your host, Daniel Botero. And in this podcast, we help international STEM students land a job that sponsors their H-1B without applying to hundreds of companies. So if you enjoyed this episode, give us a follow, give us a review, and share it with a friend. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. All right, well, all right, all right. Welcome back to this episode of the How to Get a Job podcast today, ladies and gentlemen. I have an amazing guest with me today. I have Mr. Gene Rice in the house. Gene is among having so much experience. He's the chairman and co-founder of Rice Call International, has over 30 years of recruitment experience. But um, not only that, him and his daughter are recently published an amazing book called Grad to Grown Up, 68 Tips to Excel in Your Professional and, and Personal Life. I mean, your personal and professional life and I was just talking to him, you know, before we recorded and I was like, all right, Gene, we have to hit record. Everything you're sharing is gold. Let's just get started. Gene, how are you doing today? Daniel, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. And like I said, I was really looking forward to talking to you because college to career, grad to grown up, there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallels here. So I'm looking forward to spending some time with you. No, absolutely. So um, just to catch up the audience a little bit. Uh, on your background, you have over 30 years of recruitment experience. You you have a firm um, that helps some of the largest companies, some of the biggest companies, well-known companies recruit their C-level executives. So you have a lot of experience, but tell us a little bit more about your background. Yeah, my background is, you know, it's, it's different. I really had three different careers, Daniel. Uh, I started off my first career going to college in New York, St. John's was I started off as a bartender as I'm going to school. Then I became the manager. Then the, the club kept expanding and I ended up becoming a part owner of uh, this really popular club in New York that only booked original music. So I had the ability, we had bands like the Ramones, Joan Jett, the Straight Cats, Bo Dilly, all starting in the club. Uh, and then I opened the second club. Uh, I got engaged to my wife and she would only marry me if I got out of that business. So I went into corporate America I took a sales position with a division of an international Fortune 100 company at that time, Alcatel. And I went from sales, within a seven year period, I went from sales to sales management, to general manager in New Jersey, to district manager running Philadelphia, Delaware, and New Jersey. My last position with them was heading up all East Coast operations and having probably over a thousand people reporting to me. I had a great career. I was compensated extremely well, but it was one of those jobs back uh, in the 90s, where I was on an airplane every single day. It wouldn't be uncommon for me to be in two cities in one day. And I had a young family. I wanted to get off the road. So I opened an executive search firm. I opened the firm because I had used uh, a number of search firms myself in building my staff at Alcatel. I thought I could bring some value to it. We uh, initially aligned my, my partner and I, who was one of my GMs at Alcatel, with at that time, the largest recruiting franchise in the world. It had over a thousand offices. Uh, the first year we ended up becoming, we did more business that first year than any of their offices ever done. We were that new office of the year. We went on to become the office of the year seven years. Uh, I was the managing partner of the year five times. Uh, and, uh, but what happened was we started getting invited into the boardroom, competing for C-level positions and the name was hurting. So we broke away and became Rice Cohen International and the firm just exploded. Uh, and uh, went on to become one of the 25 largest search firms in the world. Uh, I was recognized uh, as one of the 100 most influential people in the history of recruiting. 
I felt good about that because you had uh, Bill Gates and Jack Welsh in, on that list as well. It was anybody who was really known for recruiting, you know? Uh, I ended up, uh, my partner and I ended up starting a training series just for the recruiting business. And one of those training series became one of the biggest sellers uh, called the 25 K, uh, Common Traits of the Big Billers based on interviewing 200 of the biggest billers in the business at that time. So uh, I wrote the book, Grad the Grown Up, Daniel. It was basically based on 25 years of bringing four college interns into my company every single summer for eight weeks. And I would spend a couple of hours with them. It started off as Gene's life lessons, things I wish I knew going into my senior year of college. And what came out of it was all their questions around everything, life, career. Uh, and I realized just how much they needed help with in starting their professional and personal careers. So we wrote the book, Grad to Grown Up. Uh, it's for everybody, really, but it's really geared to help all of those young adults really build a professional and personal life that they can be proud of. And it overlaps into my charity, which has helped over 800 kids pursue their passions from underserved youths uh, called the Plant a Seed Inspire a Dream Foundation. So every kid who graduates from that when they turn 18, get a copy of the book and all the proceeds will go to the book. So Thanks. So hopefully that wasn't too long. Sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. Um, and I know one thing that you were mentioning is that you've been part of hiring hundreds, if not thousands of C-level executives and just executives to companies. And these are companies that we all know of, right? Like yeah. companies that if we were, if you were to name some of those names, everybody pretty much can recognize, right? Um, I would love to talk about what do you think the main difference is when in the, in the interview process between when you're interviewing someone at a higher level versus somebody that's more for an entry level role? Well, I think at the higher level, then you're right. Their past experience will play a bigger part of it, right? You know, the searches that came to us, our clients came to us and they retained us because, you know, we got paid whether they hired John Smith or they hired nobody. We did all the interviewing, the internal candidates, the external candidates, and the reason why we were selected, the number one reason, right, was our expertise in that vertical market. They wanted us to bring to them, uh, a, you know, if we're doing a CEO role, they wanted a CEO from a smaller company in their industry, or they wanted a president or a chief operating officer, you know, or a chief sales officer from a, a bigger company who was ready to become a CEO. But they wanted that industry direct experience. But I will tell you, I don't think there's that many differences in how they interview. How I would prepare a CEO for an interview was very similar to how I might prepare one of these young adults that I mentor, you yeah. know, and at some point I can talk to you about it. But the thing I will share with you, which I want your audience to really hear, I placed over a thousand C-level executives. The ones that added the most value to their boards, to their shareholders, to their staffs, were the ones that not only had great professional success, but personal success. And I think, I, I can't tell you how many of them, if you know, you would know some of the names, these weren't six figure executives, they were seven figure executives. There were some of them that had an unbelievable professional background, but they were divorced, they were unhappy, they were never home, they didn't see their kids. And the message I really wanna send is, you know, I believe one of the goals of every human being should find purpose in their life, to find something that they sincerely love doing and then do it well enough that they can earn a living doing it, right? And I don't know about you, Daniel, but, you know, these, 
these interns that I would come in, you know, I would ask them, you know, why are you going into engineering? Why are you going into law? Why do you want to be an accountant? And the overwhelming response is somebody influential in their life, whether it was a parent, a grandparent, a teacher, kind of pushed them in that direction. And what really frustrated me, Daniel, is how, how many of them had very little experience in doing what they thought they wanted to do. And let me give you an example of that, right? I had two of my interns that went to two of the best law schools in America. One went to Boston College, one went to NYU. They both graduated in the top 25% of their class. They came out, both got jobs in very big law firms, right? They both came back to me within two years and hated, hated being a lawyer. Now, there's a lot of people that love being a lawyer, but you have to, you know, it's different, right? And they had things they were passionate about, but they didn't, you know, they didn't think they could ever figure out how to get a job doing that, right? My daughter, Courtney, who I wrote the book with, Daniel, she went to Lehigh University. She graduated with two, two majors, English and economics, right? At Lehigh, if you graduated with a 3.75 GPA or higher, they would pay for you to stay for your master's for free. She stayed and got her master's for free. She came to me. She said, Dad, I think I want to be a lawyer. I said, wait a second. <laughs> Based on my experience, I said, wait, before you go in that direction, let's reach out to a number of boutique law firms around where we live. And let's reach out, and I'll help you write the email. And let's say you're willing to come in and work for free that you're passionate about this and you're willing to come in and work for free. And she sent the email and a small firm reached back out to her, which I think a lot of firms will, especially if a bright kid is willing to work for free, right? <laughs> Brought her in and he exposed to the partner to everything involved with being a lawyer, the administrative piece, the research piece. He took her into the courtroom five or six times that summer. You know what happened at the end of that summer? She came to me and she said, dad, I have no desire to be a lawyer. Yeah. You know what she was passionate about, Daniel? She always was passionate about being a teacher, but she thought by going in that direction, that was below all the kids she was graduating with at Lehigh. Yeah, it was below the potential. Yeah. I said, you go for that, right? Now, she's a high school English teacher, and I got to tell you, I recently had an opportunity to move her out of her classroom uh, for the summer, and we go into this Wawa, right? And three of the kids that she taught were working at the Wawa. And I saw how they were responding to her, Daniel, you know, and I came out and I said, Courtney, you're doing exactly what you should be doing. You know, I believe in what Mark Twain says, you know, the two, the two most important days in someone's life, it's the day you're born and the day you realize why you were born, right? And she's doing what she should be doing. Yeah. So I, I, I want to encourage your audience to go. If you're passionate about something, go for it. You know, yeah, I, I think it's important. And it, I also think that as uh, a lot of my audience are minorities and uh, different minorities, like if you're an Asian minority, that like you're getting pushed a lot to become a doctor or a lawyer. And that's like what your parents want you to do. But it's like, is that what you want to do? Right. And is that um, and it, to me, I think, you know, I, I think it's funny. So, um, I even have friends like who I mean, I live in Orlando, Florida. There's a Circus de Soleil. And it's like, well, what about a clown? I'm like, actually, a clown at Circus de Soleil is an amazing career, right? So it's like, um, it's all about making sure that if, if, if whatever you decide to do, whether it's a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, a clown, that you just 
put all your effort into it so that you could actually be great in that profession, right? So then not just be a teacher, but be an amazing teacher that's impacting people's life, right? Yeah, because that will give you purpose. That's what I'm talking about. Right. And right. if you have purpose, right, and you wake up in the morning and you're not going to a job, Daniel, but you're going to something you love, yeah. my personal experience is your health is better, your relationships is better, the glass isn't half full, it can be overflowing. And how much, you know, how much more fun is it to hang out with someone where the glass is overflowing versus 20 holes on the bottom? Yeah. I mean, the conference board came out with a survey recently. I don't know if you saw it. They interviewed 2,000 executives. These were people in their 50s, Daniel. 52% of them said they had no job satisfaction. They were waking up in the morning and going to something for a paycheck. Yeah. I don't want young people to do that. I mean, now listen, you gotta, you gotta have a plan B, right? You gotta have a plan B to fall back on, but do everything you can to try to find that, you know? Yep. And I can tell you, if you want, I can, I can give you an experience that I, I recently went through with a young person that might give them some insight into the coaching I gave them to try to pursue that passion. You know, uh, I had a charity reach out to me because they knew of my charity. And this charity, Daniel, helped uh, foster kids that never knew their parents get into college. And then if the foster kid graduated from college and they were having a hard time getting their first job, they would reach out to some community leaders that might mentor them a little bit. So this charity calls me and says, we have this great young man coming out of Temple University. He's really struggling getting that first job. Will you talk to him? And I said, absolutely. So I scheduled a call with him, Daniel, right? First thing I asked him is, okay, what was your major? He said, sports management. I'm like, oh my God, sports management. I said, okay, what have you done so far? He goes, I sent my resume to the Eagles, the Phillies, the 76s, the Flyers. I said, so what's happened? He says, nothing's happened. No one's reached back out to me. And I'm like, hey, let me explain to you rule number one. If any of those franchises are looking for someone that has absolutely no experience, they'll reach back out to you and the other thousand resumes they got. You're never going to break in that way, Daniel, right? I said, I will go on this journey with you, but I need to ask you two questions first. How passionate are you about this sports management? Because there aren't that many jobs, and usually the people that get hired out of college into sports management, there's a hook. They know someone that brings them right. in, right? I said, you don't know anybody. So the first question I have for you, if we get lucky, are you willing to move to Des Moines, Iowa and work for a single A baseball team? He goes, I'll go anywhere. I said, okay, fine. Here's the second. I said, we could, we're going to go on this journey, but we might strike out, right? And I need to know before we go on the journey together, what your plan B is. What, what would you be willing to do career-wise? And he said to me, oh, I'd be willing to go into sales. I'm like, thank God, there's a lot more sales jobs than there are sports management jobs. Yeah, ticket sales, they'll hire <laughs> you for that. So what I did with him, Daniel, is I sat down with him. And let me tell you, this is the strategy we used. And this is something that I, that I believe in for young people. And young people, they, they, they don't have confidence in doing this, right? I will tell you that because I ended up being on a number of these top executive recruiter lists in the world, right? I would get on average between 80 and 120 resumes a week. Now, Daniel, when I tell you, I couldn't even read these, but more than likely, if there was one out of 120 I could help, it was a lot. Yeah. Because the way the executive retained industry works, you specialize in a vertical market. You could be the CEO of the greatest healthcare company in the world, 
I couldn't help you, right? Right. But a couple of times a year, Daniel, I'd get an email from a young person and the email would say this, something like this. I am graduating from college. I'm passionate about the executive search or the human resource industry. I've done some research. I know you're a thought leader. Would you spend a few minutes with me? Mm-hmm. I always return that email. Because you can help. And, and I asked all these C-level executives, I asked them if they would return an email like that. You know what they said to me? Overwhelmingly, absolutely. You know why? For no other reason, Daniel, they'd want someone to help a family member of theirs, right? So I helped this young man write an email. Now, this email is in the book, Grad to Grown Up. It takes, it takes you through exactly what to write. I had him do the research. I want you to identify, we're gonna start in a 50 mile radius of Philadelphia, because that's where you wanna live. And then once we strike out there, we're gonna expand in 300 mile radiuses. And if we get lucky, you'll be in Des Moines, Iowa, working for a single A baseball team. I want you to start with the major franchises. Go right back to the Phillies, the Sixes, the Eagles. I want you to identify every C-level executive. I'll help you get their emails, and I'll tell you how to explain how to get their emails. And then we wrote this email to them, okay? And then once we strike out at the – then we'll go down to AAA, AA, and then we'll go 300 miles. He sends the first emails out, calls me. He says, the chief marketing officer of the 76ers says he'll give me 30 minutes on Friday. I said, great. Let me prepare you for that call because you have to know how to handle that call. Mm -hmm. I said, when it's over, I want you to call me. Okay, let me know what happens. And how do you prepare for that call? Well, I take them through, and in the book, there's a whole chapter on it, but it takes them through the questions they have to ask, right? How they have to end up, how they have to start it, why why the things they're going to ask, and at the end, how they're going to end it, right? And it's I can go into it in more detail, but let me just finish the story for you, right? So he calls me after, and he says, I said, how did it go? He goes, I think it went really well. I said, why do you feel that way? He goes, he's invited me in on Tuesday to meet four people. I'm like, wait a second. He's invited you in to meet four people. That means there's a job there. He's not going to waste four people's time. So let me prepare you for the interviews. Bottom line is he comes out and the 76 is hired him in their corporate sales department. It got his foot in the door. Okay. It got his foot in the door. And the message I want your, I don't know if you've talked about this in your previous podcast. When I talk to young adults and my interns, they're intimidated reaching out to a senior C-level executive. Yeah. I'm telling them you're going to have a lot better success reaching that. Because you know why? When that chief marketing officer from the 76 has passed that on to talent acquisition, that resume was dealt with very differently, very differently than someone at a lower level. When the C-level executive says, I spoke to this young person, this is someone I want you to interview for this job, or that is dealt with at a different level. So that's the first, that's the first message I want your audience to hear, not to be intimidated. Do the homework, write the email the right way, understand how to handle the call, but don't think because this is a 55-year-old CEO that they're going to ignore you. The majority of them will respond to you just the way I did in the candidates I placed. Yeah, you're sharing so many, so much great advice there that I kind of want to just recap a lot of, for me, at least the biggest takeaways. Um, I think we assume that this 
C-level executives or even like a little bit lower directors and up, right? Anything was considered an executive in, in corporate America, which which the director and up, that they're untouchable, like that these people are not human, but they're humans just like you and I. Like they also at one point needed help to get to where they are. At one point, they never knew how to handle interview questions. They had to prep like you and I, right? And at the end of the day, they understand that no one great does anything alone. And so they're one to give back. And especially when you get to that level, there's a lot of support that you've, you've gone throughout the years to get to that level. And so they, there's a lot. And, and, and what I will always ask when I talk about this with my clients, I say to you, I, I challenge anybody listening to this podcast and say, okay, you're graduated college or you're about to graduate college. And you're like, Hey, no, no profession is going to reply to me. And I say to you this, if a high school student, messaged you on Instagram or Facebook and says, Hey, D Daniel, can I get 15 minutes of your time so I can learn how, what it took, what, what I can do to be successful in college? Would you give it to them? Or what advice do you have for me as I'm going into my freshman year of college? Would you give it to them? And what you're going to find is that 99% of people, whenever I ask this question, I'm doing public speaking, they say, absolutely. So then my reply to you is like, well, you don't graduate college and become a jerk. You don't be, you don't grad, you don't get promoted to a C-level executive and automatically become a jerk. It's the still same human person that was willing to help back then and is willing to help now, if not more now, because they feel a, a sense of gratitude and say, hey, I need to help the next people do it. Now, it's up to you to do it, right? It's up to you to do the reach out messaging to do that, to stand out, because that's like doing that. Is going the extra mile and there is no traffic in the extra mile, right? And so how many messages is the chief marketing officer getting about that particular asking for help from a college student? I guarantee there's not a lot. Not a lot. Not a lot. And, and, and listen, the fact that you're saying to them, I'm passionate. I have a passion for your industry. C-level executives like to hear that, right? They're going to respond to it. And Daniel, let me just, because I know you do a lot of prepping of your people for interviews. Yep. I believe the second goal every human being should have, and they don't do a good enough job. Listen, the career centers, if, if the students go to the career centers, they're doing the best they can, but they're all preparing the kids the same way, right? I believe the second goal every human being should have in life is to become, listen, in sports, it's called an Olympian right? A hall of famer, right? In science, it could be a Nobel prize winner, right? In chess, it's called a grandmaster. I believe every human being should have a goal of becoming a grandmaster of interviewing. Why? Because when you find that job you really want with that company, you're going to be interviewing with four or five other strong candidates. The grandmaster who really understands the skill involved and has taken the time to learn it, they're the ones who not only get offered the job, but my experience has been they get paid higher. So I can give you a quick thing in the book, Brad the Grown Up walks them through each one of this. But if you want, I wouldn't mind. I'll, I'll, I'll go quickly on how I prepare a CEO yep. candidate or even a young adult for an interview. Absolutely. Let me, let me give you my theory on interviewing. And then I want you definitely to share that. Um, okay. And I want you to, if you disagree or like, let's have a conversation about this. So I, I this is my, my belief, right? Like at the end of the day, Every company, regardless of its size, whether it's the U.S. government or Amazon or a, a mom and pops company with three employees has limited resources, right? And because we have limited resources, a company can't just go and hire everybody for a role that's available, which means that every time they're hiring someone, they're making 
a conscious investment. So if I am bringing in this software engineer and I'm paying them $100,000, right? I can't use that $100,000 for more marketing. I can't use that $100,000 to buy equipment or software. I'm, I'm allocating that saying $100,000 out of my limited resources, this is the best thing I can do with that money, right? And what happens is, so if, if that's all true, what that means to me that the interview comes down to really one question. How are you the best investment for me at this point? How do you solve my problem? And when you think about an investment, you have to show the risk versus the reward, right? Because a lot of times I like, I hear like, well, Daniel, I apply for jobs. I'm overqualified. I'm still not getting it. Well, the risk of the hire outweighs the overqualification or vice versa, right? And so to me, whether you're interviewing to be a CEO or you're interviewing to be a level entry junior associate, right? It goes down to the, how is how, like the interview is all about mitigating that investment, right? The more interviews there is, is because I'm trying to figure out if this is going to be the best fit for this role, that investment side of it. And so you have to keep that in mind and prove how you solve the problem that the company currently has and why they're hiring for this role. And the candidate that can solve that the best with the least amount of risk as possible is usually the one that gets the offer. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, you know, but, but here's one of the things I've found with a lot of young adults. A lot of young adults go into an interview and they think they got in the job description or the recruiter's given an overview and they think that's what the company is looking for, right? Now, what you're talking about is, you know, behavior-based interviewing and understanding how to answer those questions effectively to demonstrate what you just mentioned, Daniel. But yep. let, let me take you through a little, maybe a five-step thing. Yep. I want to get your feedback on it too. Of course, there's all kinds of upfront work you have to do. I'm not, you know, before that, you have to understand the company. You have to read their website. You have to, uh, you know, do some background on the people. But let me take you through, you know, I'll, you know, not the, not the pre-work, but the interview itself. Okay. The first thing, and this is where a lot of young adults kind of miss it. And I'm going to ask you a question, Daniel. You've been doing this for a long time. Okay. Let's go back. You're filling, you're filling a position for Pepsi. Right. Mm -hmm. You've interviewed seven candidates for this position. At the end, you have two candidates that everyone on the interview team says these two are stars. Daniel, you can't go wrong hiring either one. They have the exact same experience. Right. Mm -hmm. No one's more experienced than the other. Right. Your whole team and you feel, wow, either one of these is going to come in and make a contribution immediately. But all you got is one position. What's going to make you lean one way or the other? You got two candidates. You can only offer one of them the job. What might, what might be the tiebreaker for you, Daniel? I mean, to me, I, there's probably a couple of things that I look at. So if experience, if on paper, they're the same, right? Like I, same. I, right. I want to look at the, like the career part, like how does their priorities outside of work align with our priorities, right? Their goals, their vision, where do they, what, where do they want to see themselves in a couple of years from now, right? Both um, of them are right on exactly the same. It comes down to who do I get along with the most too, right? Bingo, bingo. You have, you have two candidates, equal experience. The one that developed the best chemistry and personal rapport with you, Daniel, will be the one that you will select. And that is my overwhelming experience, okay? Mm -hmm. Sometimes a candidate who is less qualified, 
but has built so much better rapport will get offered the job, right? So the first thing I want your listeners to understand is their first responsibility is to establish chemistry and rapport with the person they're meeting with. Now, how do they do that? Obviously, before you're looking at LinkedIn, you're trying to connect the dots. Is there anything you have in common? You're Googling the person, right? And if, the, if nothing else, you come in a Zoom or in their office, you look behind them, you see a picture. Your job is to have them talk about something that has nothing to do with the position. Get them a personal connection. Because within 24 hours after that interview, if you send a thank you email and you're somehow connecting something personal, the chances of getting a response from that person goes up a lot higher. Yeah. So the first thing I want young adults to grasp, you have a responsibility to establish rapport and chemistry. That's yeah. step number one. Yeah. Step number two, and I want your audience to hear this question. You're in college, you're taking a test. If you had the answers to the test before the test, how much better would you do on the test? A lot better, right? <laughs> a lot better. Here's what I found with a lot of young adults, Daniel. They go into the interview and they've read a job description online or the recruiter has gone over with them what the company's looking for. They automatically assume that's what the company and this person that's interviewing me is looking for. I'm gonna tell your audience that there's usually an interviewing team of three to four or five people. On that interviewing team will be someone from talent acquisition, inside recruiter, an HR person. On that team is going to be a peer of the position normally. Mm -hmm. On that team is going to be the most important position is the person who you're going to report to. Mm -hmm. And depending on the position, they're going to have a senior executive or a boss, a higher level of your manager. I want each of your audience understand each one of those people have a little different twist on what they're looking for. The different priorities and goals. Very different priorities. Your responsibility, and this is the skill of becoming a grandmaster, your responsibility is up front to get the answers to the test before the interview is, is over. Now, how do you do that? You've established chemistry, you've established rapport. You say something as simple as, you know, I did my homework before coming in here. I was really impressed with the company and I was really looking forward to the time we we're gonna to spend together. I know we have limited time together and I was just wondering if I could ask you I've read the job description. What is most important to you in the background of the candidates you want to bring in to fill this role for the XYZ company? And shut up and listen. The HR or talent acquisition or inside recruiters probably going to just verbiage back the job description. But my experience has been everyone's going to give you a little different answer to that. The first two or three things that they say to you, those are the most important things to that person. And your responsibility before that interview is over is to show that person how you match to their criteria. And that's really key. And that's a skill. A lot of people, you have to role play that. You have to get comfortable in how you ask it. I shared with you how I would ask it. Everyone has a different approach to it. The, the, but the skill is getting the answers to the test for that individual person before the interview is over, okay? Yeah, I think a couple of things as, as we dive into this, like a little bit. Um, the first thing when you say build report, I think I, I love that. I, you know, a lot of my clients know that my my they have a five step networking process. So like this is before the interview, um, and the first step is starting with commonality. 
right? So it's always establishing this commonality and it doesn't have to, like, you know, you can always go to like, oh, we're both alumni from the same university. But like, to me, even when we started this conversation, establishing commonalities, like, hey, I was just, I was just near your backyard, right? Like I literally just did a bike ride where you're from and we established <laughs> yeah. this commonality, right? Um, and then, so I love that because it's so true because you essentially find commonality, find, it, you build that chemistry that you're building because we could, me and you could be very, very different but there's some things that we can we have in common. We we both been to that area of town. We know how beautiful it is. We know the, yeah. you know, the, the, um, and so on. Uh, number two, when you're talking about the answers to the open book test, I love that, right? And I think it's super important. And it goes back to yes, and you mentioned this. Like, there's a lot you can do before it. Some of this you can try to get and try to answer it before you walk into the interview. And when you're in the interview, if you had a chance, if you to to say, hey, I just like you can kind of say, kind of to your question say, this is what, from my understanding, this is what you're looking for. Is there anything else that I may be missing? Right. But one thing I do have a, qu a question for you, you, you would ask that question before the interview gets started or towards the end? Uh, early on. I want, I want the answers to the test early. Right. right. And, and so right? I, to me, that's where I find most job seekers will struggle with because they, they don't know how to interrupt and, and essentially take control of the interview until the end where they're like, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. Well, you know what? And in, in, and in the book, Grad the Grown Up, there's a whole chapter, a tip on how different ways to ask that question. And that's what I said. It, there's a skill involved, Daniel. You have to, you got to get comfortable. It, it's it's got to be your verbiage. It's got to be your voice, right? But you want to ask that early on, not at the end. And, and I'll yeah. take you through. So, that, so first step one, establish chemistry. Yeah. Step two, get the answers to the test. Now, step three. Every single interview, you're going to be asked a series of questions, okay? Mm -hmm. I believe most companies will lean towards a behavior-based interview, right? Very specific questions. Someone has to be comfortable with answering a behavior-based question and identifying this is a behavior-based question, right? Can you give me an example of, was there ever a time, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there's certain things and you have to be prepared going in and a young adult coming out of college, these behavior-based questions are all around things like initiative, right? Being collaborative, being, a, you know, working with a team, right? How they deal with conflict, right? You know, a financial acumen possibly, right? So you have to understand you Google the company and if they're doing a behavior-based interview, you might get some behavior-based questions online you can look at. And I really believe in you know, all these companies that the consulting firms that train on behavior-based interviewing, they were actually clients of ours. We put their C-level executives in. So the SHLs of the world, the, uh, the Corn Ferries, which used to be PDI. One of the firms I really like is a company out of Pittsburgh called DDI, right? Developmental Dimensions International, Daniel. And I train my people and I, I say, if you get a behavior-based question, I want you to think, here's a tip to prepare. Think of the word STAR, S-T-A-R. The S-T stands for situation. The A stands for based on the situation, here's the action that I took. And the R, based on the situation, the action I took, here's the result. Situation, action, result. So be prepared to give them a situation. Was there ever a time you had to deal with someone on a team that was underperforming, that was affecting the results? 
Yes, in college, I, a professor in a course, uh, there was a project, uh, an end of the semester project that was worth 25% of the grade. I was assigned to work with two of my, my, you know, my fellow students. We, initially, we sat down, we broke into three, what each one of us was going to do and then come back together. I did my part, another person did their part, the third person just wasn't responding. We, I, I reached out to him, said, can we get together? Can we help in any way to get this part? Because without your part, we can't finish ours. So we strategized with him. He was getting held up with something. We helped him put some thoughts together. He came back to us two days later. He finished his part. We put it together. The end result was we got an A in the paper. Situation, action, result. Where young people go astray with a behavior-based interview, Daniel, is two things. Number one, they talk about sometimes we did this, we did that. I want your audience to understand if it's a behavior-based question, they want to know specifically your action, yep. not the team's action. And number two, what I find with a lot of young adults in a behavior-based interview, they can't think of a good example, so they either make one up, right? Or they, you know, my, my recommendation is simply to say, that's a great question. You know, can I come back to that? And what happens is they'll go on to the next question. You'll buy yourself some time, right? Yeah. right? So there's a certain way to prepare. Behavior-based will help you if it's not a behavior-based interview. But then the other part of questioning is they're gonna, there's always going to be a time when they're going to ask you, do you have any questions for us? Yep. Right? And I got to tell you something. I believe in, first of all, I don't want anyone to take a job without every one of their questions being asked. But there's a time and a place, right? And I believe that you need to ask win-win questions early on, right? And let me give you an example. Of, you know, and if your audience wants, they can go to the website of the book, gradtogrownup.com, and they can download for free the chapter on what is a win-win question. But let me give you an example. A couple of years ago, my son asked me, he says, Dad, he's, he had a good friend of his who was coming out of Penn State University, Daniel, with an engineering degree. His GPA was 3.4. And if you interviewed him, he looked like he walked out of GQ magazine. He had nine interviews and got no offers. And first of all, coming out of Penn State with that GPA and an engineering degree, he shouldn't be 0 for 9. Right. So he asked me if I would work with him. I started talking to the young man. I said, Tell me some of the questions you've been ask, asking. <laughs> he asked one company, he said, listen, I, I know your stock price has really been going down. Can you explain to me why? <laughs> That's a question you want to have answered. It's not a question you want to ask on the first interview. No, and right? I think a lot of that you could have found out before the interview. Yeah. Another right. question, one of the, one of the C-level executives, there was charges that he found out online for sexual har harassment. He asked the firm, how how that law, the lawsuit was going yeah i said wait a second you got to ask win-win questions you know and and i i can give you a whole bunch of them for your audience no, I, I, I think, I think yeah. we'll, we'll put the link to the website for sure so they can download them i because i think it's important i think what you're saying in behavioral questions i agree i think i use the start method a lot too uh well we we teach it in, in our program and i think it's important to understand the behavioral questions is they're asking you about situations that are most likely going to encounter if you were to get the job so if you tell me about a time 
where you dealt with a difficult customer, odds are you will be dealing with sometimes with difficult customers. And right. so uh, past performance is a good indicator of future performance. So being right. able to communicate how you handled previous situation can give their interviewers an insight how you will handle it in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So what so, is number four? Well, here's number four. And here's, here's one of the things I found with a lot of young adults, right? They come out of an interview and I ask, how did it go? It went great. Did they have any concerns? Oh, it was going so well, I didn't even ask. <laughs> well, listen, here's the one thing I want your audience to understand. My 30 years in executive search, I can tell you, everyone who does any type of interviewing has some sort of concerns. Yep. Sometimes the concern is the person's overqualified. Sometimes the concern is the person's underqualified. Right. As an executive retain uh, recruiter, the only time I got concerned was when there was, when there was no concerns. Because to me, the concerns are the buying signals, right? Mm -hmm. So first of all, accept that, embrace it, don't get upset with it. What's not acceptable is you leaving that interview without understanding what those concerns are. And if the concerns are false, having a chance to address them and overcome them and get agreement they're no longer a concern, or if they're real to minimize them and maximize your strengths. The skill and how you become a grandmaster is how you ask that question at the end, Daniel. Yep. And here's how I would coach your audience. At the end of the interview, if you feel this way, I would say something like this. I was really excited about coming in and spending some time with you. And after spending this time with you, I want you to know that my interest has gone up and here's why. And based on what you told me you were looking for, here's why I think I'm a really good match for the firm. Do you have any concerns that I could add value to the ABC company in this role? And shut up and listen. Yeah. And if the concern comes back and they say something that is false, which they might because maybe you didn't have a chance to talk about it, simply say, I understand why you might feel that way, but here's something I haven't had a chance to share with you. Let me go into it in more detail. Do you feel better? Is that still a concern of yours or has that been alleviated? Yep. Now, here's what happens with a lot of young adults. They go in, they interview. Maybe you're, you know, you're. No, no, I, yeah. I, I agree with you. Like, because, that, so I have a similar question. I'm going to share mine. And I think yours is really good because the way that you're setting it up before the question. So you're saying, hey, my interest has increased. So I love that. The question that I have my clients always ask, and I tell them is a cardinal rule you cannot break. If you walk into an interview, I don't care what you're interviewing for, you're in sales, you're selling yourself. So you have to close the sale, right? And that question is because I want to be really respectful of your time. We only have four minutes left. That question is, is there any particular reason why you think I might not be a good fit for this role, right? Yeah. Same reason, because you want instant feedback right away, because once you walk out of there, you're never going to get feedback not in a level entry role. The companies in HR will not give you feedback because they're too afraid of getting a lawsuit for discrimination. And so when you get feedback right away, most of the time you will catch the interviewer off guard. They will tell you their real concern. Um, and if they can go three ways, right? One, you're, no, I think you're great. I think you match out, you, you, you check all the boxes, then you write right away. I'm glad you feel that way. I also feel like I'll be a great fit. I, I think I can add value. What are the next steps? So you get it right away. Worst case scenario, they say, hey, I think you don't, you don't have X, Y, and C skills. To your point, if you have those skills that you didn't mention it because of time, you can bring it up and overcome that objection, right? And then um, if, you, if, if you don't have that skill, my game plan, my suggestion is to say, how are you going to gain those skills, even if you don't have it? And, well, and I'll go a step further, Daniel. Here, here's what I'll say. Here's what happens with a lot of young adults. They come out 
and they come out of college and they say at the end when they ask that question, yeah, I really like you, but I wish you had two years experience. And they just, they, you know, they have no idea how to deal with it. I'm telling your audience, here's how, here's how I would coach them to deal with it. You know, you're absolutely right. I do not have two years experience, but what I do have, and I promise you, I have a work ethic and a drive. You will find no one who will be in earlier than me, no one who will work later. You will find no one who will be a better teammate, who will be more loyal to this company, who will take more on. I will personally take whatever I have to before I start. I will take the initiative to do whatever I can to come up to speed on my lack of experience. And I promise you, if given the opportunity, you will not regret it. Do not, do not just accept it, come back and fight and, and make sure they get a real feel for what you can really bring to them, you know? That's awesome. And, and I would tell you that it, I know that it sounds very uh, like risky or like, I don't know, cocky to say that. No, you need to say that. You, again, the company is making an investment in you. You need to reassure them that they're making the right investment. And whatever you lack in experience, you make up in drive and work ethic, right? Yeah. And then the next step, the last one yeah, is just closing one. for the next step, right? Number five, Daniel. And yep. a lot of them walk out of there and listen, I don't want someone to go in there and think they had a great interview and, and not know that there's three other candidates they're interviewing. So, you know, asking like, hey, listen, at the end, uh, listen, I've really enjoyed this. And, and if you are interviewing other companies and you feel this firm is your number one choice, I recommend you say that. Say, listen, I want you to know I have another company that's really coming after me. And you are my number one choice. And I want to be able to handle them professionally. Can you tell me what next steps are and timeframes on when you might be able to make a decision? Because I don't want to accept anything until I know you're interested in me. Yeah. No. I if they it. are interested in you, Daniel, they're going to say to you, they're going to tell you what's going to happen. Right? Yep. Yep. And then follow up with the next thing. Listen, I know it's short for time, but let me say one last thing to your audience. Yep. There's three things I want them. Before you accept the job, these are the three things that I've identified that make not only for a short-term match between a candidate and a company, but more importantly, a long-term match. If you're going to join a firm, you should feel, even if you're coming out of college, that I can make an impact. I can make a contribution. Here's how I'm going to do it. Equally as important, number two, you should feel a year down the road, you should be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, as a result of, of joining this firm, I've grown professionally in these ways. You have to be growing professionally, not just contributing. And number three, and most important, and this is where the young adults that I mentor miss it, you, those first two things can be there. But if number three is not, you should not only re respect, but like your immediate boss and the people you're rubbing shoulders with every day enough, that if you had to go out and break bread with them and have a meal with them, it wouldn't be something you would dread doing. If you don't respect and like your boss and the other people you're working with, you're going to be unhappy very quickly and you're going to want to make a move. Make sure you take the time to see if that connection is there. Yeah. Gene, this is awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been an amazing episode. you got to check out Grad to Grown Up, 68 Tips to Excel in Your Personal and Professional Life. All the links to... The website, the book's website, you can also buy it on Amazon. And I'll even put Gene's LinkedIn account will be in the show notes. Gene, thank you for so much for your time. It's been amazing. Whatever I can do, Dan, you take care of yourself. Next. 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. If you're still listening, it's because you've reached the end of the episode and that speaks volumes of you. In an age of distraction, the fact that you're still listening to this means that you're serious about your career. And to do that, I want to return the favor and reward you for this behavior. So to do that, I want to give you access to a free 30-minute webinar that's going to completely change the way you job search. This webinar was built just for international STEM students and we're going to talk about the three biggest mistakes international STEM students make when looking for a job and how to fix them. So if you want to get access to this webinar, go to masteringcollege forward slash webinar podcast.